Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, a history of government contracts. What rules were not uh, followed? There are more questions tonight about GC Strategies, the outside firm behind the ArriveCan app, after La Presse uncovers government deals worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Coming up, we will speak with Joël Denis Bellevance, who broke the story. Also, my sense right now is I don't know which way it's going. As the fate of Pharmacare hangs in the balance, we'll hear from one group who says a public system is the only way to ensure no one falls through the cracks. And... I'll just say it. Biden's too old. What concerns American voters more? Joe Biden's age or Donald Trump's criminal indictments? This is Primetime Politics. Hello, everyone. I'm Michael Serapio. GC Strategies finds itself under more scrutiny this evening. The company behind ArriveCan, the app that costs Canadian taxpayers nearly $60 million, was the subject of a news investigation by La Presse. An investigation that found GC Strategies has in fact received over a hundred government contracts before, worth tens of millions of dollars that all started in 2015. So let's recap. A company that had never before received contracts from the federal government started getting an avalanche of contracts just three weeks after this prime minister took office. The company, uh, in fact, got a quarter of a billion dollars for IT, even though it admits it doesn't do IT. It has four employees and has a headquarters in the basement of a cottage. Can the prime minister explain why this suspicious company started getting these contracts exactly 21 days after he took office. The Right Honourable Prime Minister. It's obviously an unacceptable situation, which is why uh, the uh, relevant authorities are fully investigating exactly what went on here, uh, particularly highlighted uh, by the Auditor General's uh, recent report. Uh, this is an issue uh, we need to continue to understand uh, and make sure uh, that the rules are being followed, uh, make sure that our procurement practices across government uh, are respectful of taxpayer money. Well, joining us now is Joël Denis Bellevance, Auto Bureau Chief for La Presse. Joël Denis, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. So, you know, I think for many Canadians, I think it's fair to say, many Canadians did not even hear of GC Strategies before, but obviously a company well-known by Ottawa Circles based on the investigation that you did, just how well is this company known in Ottawa? How often have they been turned to by government? Well, they're known by a little number of people within some departments because they've been relying on that company for contracts, uh, contracts for IT services, so internet or uh, linked to computers. And, uh, but they do act mainly as middlemen between the government and real IT companies. So, 
And by getting those contracts, they get a commission of about between 15 and 30 percent. That was uh, uh, exposed last uh, November by the two people who, con who uh, w went before a committee of parliament when they were studying the ARRIVE-CAN uh, uh, issue, and they said that they get about 30 percent commission. But that does increase the cost of doing business for the government. So uh, there's a famous question that the Auditor General always asks, did taxpayers get value for money? And mm -hmm. so that question applies in that issue because the, um, that little company with two people based in a bungalow in a suburb of Ottawa got uh, close to a quarter of a billion dollars in contracts from the government for IT services. Uh, and this is a quarter of a billion across what, since 2015? Yes, exactly. That's according to what I saw, uh, I discovered by looking at the contracts. And it goes from one department to the other. You've got Statistic Canada, you've got uh, Global Affairs, uh, Innovation uh, Department, uh, also uh, uh, Fisheries and Ocean. But mostly uh, the uh, uh, Canadian uh, Border Services Agency, they got a lot of contracts given to that company. Yeah, and, and, and as you say, a commission on the roughly $60 million that was spent on the ArriveCan app itself. They, they got a third of, of uh, that budget, uh, according to the other digital. They got $20 millions out of the $60 millions that we know that uh, app, uh, app cost to taxpayers so far. Yeah, and I, because the Auditor General said it was the best estimation they could have based on what they saw. But you know, it's interesting because you mentioned two people and talk to us a bit more about GC Strategies because last I saw, it is that small. We're talking yeah. about two people that run a company that at the end of the day was able to, to accumulate contracts worth a quarter of a billion dollars. And that's uh, why it's raising so many questions. How a little company of that sort could get so many contracts with that total amount of value. And uh, I was reading a feature on those two people that was published in a local Ottawa newspaper and they were bragging about the fact that their revenues were exploding up to 676% since they had began business in Ottawa. And that you know, relationship with the government, getting so many contracts, explain why their businesses were doing so well in that time. Yeah, and you have tried to speak to GC Strategies yourself. In fact, you went to that bungalow that you yes. talked about offhand. Yes. What do you want to know from them? And because, you know, at the end of the day, I think there's a lot of questions, but that's where they remain, questions right now. Yes, questions and questions that uh, I think all opposition parties and regular folks, Canadians, and even the government. Uh, today, the Prime Minister was saying that I'm also asking myself questions about what did that company uh, did for, uh, for the government. And so uh, what was their exact role? Why were they involved in those contracts? How did they get th those contracts? And how do you disperse the money to the companies that does the work when you're only two people? <laughs> you need some kind of human resources department to manage that, some uh, financial operations that is you know, quite huge. And the uh, Auditor General noticed that in the ARRIVE-CAM application uh, development that there was little or no paper trail in most of the uh, work that was supposedly done. So a lot of questions and some part of the contracts that were given to C, uh, GC Strategies have been referred to the RCMP. So there's a criminal investigation. We don't know what 
the uh, exact nature of that investigation is, but we know that the RCMP is looking at that. Yeah, and I think that's important to say, right? Like, we, we, we still don't know a lot. Uh, we don't know where that investigation is, so we wait to see uh, what follows out of that. And we've tried to reach the two uh, owners of that company uh, on several occasions over the last two days and with no success. Now, we started this conversation by playing a bit of Pierre Polyev in the house today uh, for people at home. You spoke to them. La Presse spoke with Pierre Polyev. What else is the Conservative Leader proposing to do here to follow up on your report? They're going to try to get two committees to look at those contracts. Uh, the, pub, uh, the Public Accounts Committee, which usually looks at, you know, spending of the government, but also government operations and uh, budget estimates. So those two separate committees. And so uh, I expect that committee to look at it in the coming days. Uh, but uh, today also the Conservative uh, went further in asking that the Auditor General look at all the contracts that were awarded to that company over the last eight years. Okay, uh, Joël-Denis Bellevance, uh, thank you for this. I appreciate the time. Thank you, Michael. Well, time now for a look at what happened in politics today. Canada is giving Ukraine another $60 million worth of military aid. The Defence Minister, Bill Blair, making that announcement at the 19th Ukraine Defence Contract Group meeting in Brussels. Now, the funding is part of the $500 million the Prime Minister announced during his visit to Kyiv last June. It will help Ukraine source parts, weapon stations, avionics and ammunition to set up its F-16 fighter jet capacity. The Defence Minister was also asked today about former U.S. President Donald Trump and his recent comments on NATO suggesting that those who do not meet the 2% spending target should not be protected. I have lived next door to the United States for a long time. I tend to mostly ignore some of the political rhetoric that takes place during their elections. And I think we need to judge our allies, and particularly for Canada, the United States, on its long history and track record of, of being there for global peace. And, and, and they are always a reliable and resilient partner. We cannot be distracted from the importance of our collective responsibility to national security and national defense of our, our countries and of our alliances. The NATO defense ministers will meet in Brussels on Thursday. The Environment Minister Stephen Guilbeault is clarifying his comments on support for infrastructure projects. In a speech at a fundraising luncheon on Monday in Montreal, Guilbeault said the federal government would, quote, stop investing in new road infrastructure, calling Canada's road network perfectly adequate to respond to the needs we have. But today, Guilbeault changed his tone, saying he misspoke. I should have been more specific in, in, in that statement and, and specified that it was a project like the Troisième Lien, which myself and many of my colleagues have said many times that the federal government had no funds for a project like this. And you can look back and you, you, will, see, you will find numerous statements like myself and many other cabinet colleagues on, 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 on this specifically. And finally, Ottawa is rebranding its carbon tax rebate. It was previously known as the Climate Action Incentive Payment, but it will now be called the Canada Carbon Rebate. The federal government says the pollution pricing program will change in name only and that payments will be distributed this year.
Well, we're still waiting word for details of any Pharmacare deal between the governing Liberals and the NDP. But reports tonight say ahead of that, there are talks among Liberal ranks about covering the costs for both birth control and drugs for diabetes. Now, how that will figure into negotiations, we will have to wait and see. But we do know New Democrats are looking for framework legislation that guarantees a single-payer public system. NDP health critic Don Davies says he remains optimistic. You know, my job is to work diligently and to try to find the common ground to deliver on what we wanted for Canadians. We want to make sure that, you know, every diabetic in this country, we want to make sure they can get the insulin they need. Every young woman who needs contraception, we want to make sure she can get the contraception she needs. These are the kind of things that we're working towards, and I'm going to keep working right to the bell until, uh, until we know if we get that. And I, I am I'm confident with goodwill on both sides that we can get that. Well, to talk about PharmaCare, we're now joined by Pauline Orsfold. She chairs the Canadian Health Coalition, a group that's been on the Hill this week lobbying for public health care. Pauline, uh, good to see you again. Welcome back to the program. Thank you for having me. So, uh, obviously, PharmaCare is the big issue right now as we approach this March 1st deadline. And we know that the NDP, the party, its membership, they want a public single-payer system to come out of this uh, PharmaCare scheme. You support that. Why? Why in particular as the government is already struggling with a deficit and a debt in the red? Well, the reason that the Canadian Health Coalition and many others support a single-payer universal pharmacare program is that we need to make sure that there is no profit involved, first of all. That uh, And second of all, that it's universal so that everybody can access it. All people living and working in this great country of ours uh, are suffering. They're suffering because they have to choose between putting food on their table and buying their prescription medications. I'm a registered nurse. I've been a registered nurse for 43 years. And let me tell you, the healthcare workers out there, they have stories. Stories of people cutting their medications in half to make them last longer. And then, of course, what happens a few weeks later when the medication is not doing its job because you're only getting half, they end up in the emergency department. So a national public drug plan that's universal and single-payer would actually help with the healthcare crisis that we're in now by decreasing the number of people who access the emergency departments for healthcare. Earlier intervention versus later intervention, except that, you know, when you look at what the government has done with dental care, and in fact, Ottawa is also supporting a pilot project in PEI right now, uh, which, which has to do with pharmacare. And if you look at those two programs, there is built in there this economic bar that has to be met, this means test as to whether or not you qualify for the programming. Uh, and really, it, it doesn't cover everything, but it covers a lot for many would that not be acceptable if what we're talking about is covering the needs of the majority rather than pay, making sure everybody had something for free? The means testing is a bit of a, a burr uh, for us in so far as it, what does it matter what you make? Like uh, if you have coverage or don't have coverage, if you if you do make a lot of money, if you don't make a lot of money, you are entitled to medications that are going to keep you healthy. So the means test thing is just not on as far as our vision for a national public drug plan, a pharmacare plan.
Are you at all worried about the, the finances here? We, we've already uh, seen estimates that would basically be about 11 billion plus a year in order to, to fund a, a publicly uh, delivered system when it comes to farm care. I'm not worried because the, that is in the setup and the administration and the get to get it up and running. You know, there's always in, upfront investment costs for any public program. And overall, the savings that would be reached on the back end uh, outweighs the investment by billions of dollars. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, I, I do wonder though, because if, for example, you we, we stick on PharmaCare alone, we know that many Canadians already, through their private employers, have a, 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 a private insurance system that helps fund uh, the majority of the cost when it comes to drugs. Why not allow that system to continue and still have a public system that covers those that do not have private insurance? Why can't those two coexist together? Well, the Quebec model is exactly what you described. And as what we know from our colleagues in Quebec, it is just not working. It's not working. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't give everybody a chance to access the medications that they require for you know, health and to de-stress. And those uh, essential medications that are prescribed need to be covered 100% universal, single-payer. End of story. So you say that people are falling through the cracks or that their co-pay is too expensive? Uh, both. And thank you for bringing that up. They are falling through the cracks and yes, the co-pay is too much. Now, as you uh, make this argument for PharmaCare, and again, we're watching this very closely as the two parties, the, the governing Liberals and the NDP, uh, continue to, to move towards their March 1st deadline, you're also here making the argument for public health care writ large. And to that, we, we know that the federal government uh, did convene a first minister's meeting a year ago. Uh, subsequently, they've been negotiating these bi bilateral deals with the different jurisdictions. Um, just this past week, Ontario, British Columbia, Northwest Territories. You know, Ottawa has essentially opened up its wallet to help address issues like wait times on primary care. What more do you actually want to see out of these deals, acknowledging the fact that at the end of the day, healthcare delivery is a provincial jurisdiction, not federal? So these deals are good. I, 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 give, I give the federal government credit for being creative as to uh, giving additional funds because as I said earlier the healthcare system is being held by duct tape and goodwill of the workers uh, and so we, we need help. I'm a, I'm a registered nurse I said already and I still work at the bedside so I see what's going on. Now as far as the money that's being transferred that money has to be have um, accountability mechanisms attached because we don't want governments getting the money and then putting it into private for-profit healthcare delivery. Uh, we don't want, we need it to go into public healthcare delivered by public servants, by healthcare professionals in each of those provinces that you, and territories that you mentioned already. So we can't have the transfer go from the federal government to the provincial government and for them to either squirrel it away for a rainy day or to create uh, for-profit surgical clinics 
which we know is a drain on the public health system for resources, uh, workers, healthcare professionals. Uh, we, we can't have a dual system in any province or any of the territories. Pauline Worsfeld, I always appreciate the time. Thank you once again. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Well, to U.S. politics now, as the ages of U.S. President Joe Biden and former President Donald Trump are once again coming under greater scrutiny. Today, the former South Carolina governor, Nikki Haley, described Trump, her one-time boss, as diminished and unhinged, resembling other comments she's made about Joe Biden, who she has said is just too old to be president. I'll just say it. Biden's too old. And Congress is the most exclusive nursing home in America. Washington keeps failing because politicians from yesterday can't lead us into tomorrow. We need term limits, mental competency tests, and a real plan to defeat China and restore our economy. We have to leave behind the chaos and drama of the past with a new generation and a new conservative president. I'm Nikki Haley, and I approve this message. And Haley is running for the Republican nomination. But as things stand right now, the next U.S. vote is increasingly looking like a rematch between Biden and Trump. So for more, we're now glad to have back on our program this evening, David Leventhal, editor-in-chief of the investigative news website, Ross Story. Dave, good to see you. Hey, great to be back, Mike. Listen, there's not much of a difference when, when you look at the ages of Biden and Trump. Biden is 81, Trump is 77. But there seems to be more questions about Biden's ability to do his job. Why is that? Well, foremost, he's president of the United States right now. So he's not only running for election, he's running for re-election for four more years. And he would be 86 years old at the end of a second Biden term. So add that all up and the spotlight is uh, naturally going to be on him more than it's going to be on Donald Trump. But that doesn't mean that it's not on Donald Trump, who's going to turn 78 years old this spring, and also, too, is the former president. So we have a very bizarre situation in that a president and a former president are running against each other, and that's something that rarely happens in the United States. Yeah, rarely, as you say, although we, we are hearing from American pundits, at least some of them, uh, they're suggesting that Democrats need to dump Biden and find a more uh, inspiring candidate. How difficult would that be to, to actually accomplish? First of all, it, it's not going to happen unless Joe Biden wants it to happen, and he does not, or some sort of health crisis was to to hit Joe Biden that would force him out of the race and make it untenable for him to continue on. So as things stand right now, he is going to be the nominee of the Democratic Party. He is going to stand for re-election in the general election come November, and barring something absolutely monumental, Donald Trump is going to be the Republican nominee on his side. So this is Trump-Biden 2.0, the rematch, call it what you want, but more or less, unless something pretty crazy happens, we're going to get a rerun of what happened four years ago in 2020. Okay, so as you say, Biden, unless something catastrophic happens, will be the Democratic nominee. So how much scrutiny would that place on Kamala Harris then, given uh, Biden's age? Uh, what type of scrutiny does that create for Harris? Would that be uh, uh, for or against the Democratic ticket? Yeah, there's not a whole lot of scrutiny right now, see, seeing that she's very much in the background. Uh, she's the vice president, the number two, but yet... She is one proverbial heartbeat away from becoming president of the United States 
at any moment. And if Joe Biden were to step away, if he was forced out because of health reasons, she would be the logical person to go and slot in and and be at the top of the ticket as opposed to the second place on the ticket. Although that's not a guarantee. There would likely be other people, other Democrats who would be considered. You can think of Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, who's somebody whose stock is rising considerably in the Democratic Party. So there, there are all these parlor games are being played. But again, it's important to note that barring anything uh, like that extreme happening, Joe Biden is going to be the nominee. And it's all forward with Joe Biden. Yeah, all forward Joe Biden. But, but getting back a little bit to Kamala Harris, though, is she a plus or a negative for that campaign if the question is who would replace Biden if he were to, to be reelected and not survive a second term? Right now, you'd almost have to say a negative because her polling numbers are not great. She's not particularly popular, although she is the first woman to serve as vice president. And she's also the first non-white American to serve in that position as well. So uh, so when you put that together, you, you definitely have somebody who has been historic in that regard, somebody who has sought the presidency on her own terms running in 2020 before her presidential campaign flamed out, and she definitely has the ambition and the desire to become president were that uh, to be something that uh, was uh, an opportunity for her, whether it be now or later uh, down the road. Okay. Now, you, you alluded to it a little bit earlier, referenced it uh, quickly, the fact that, you know, that Trump has also been slipping in facts and details. And and to that, I do want people to take a look at this ad. This is from the Biden-Harris campaign, uh, underlining uh, Trump's own challenges uh, right now. Take a listen. Donald Trump is truly confused. Nikki Haley is in charge of security. We offered her 10,000 people. They don't want to talk about that. He didn't just get me confused. He mentioned it over and over and over again. He's not what he was in 2016. He has declined. That's a fact. Okay, so so again, uh, Trump has has had his own challenges. Why is that not figuring as large as the, the questions around Joe Biden? I take what you're saying that Joe Biden is the U.S. president, uh, but... Is Trump the man to replace him? If there's also lingering questions around that, why is that not such a controversy right now? Well, it's not a controversy. Well, it is a controversy, first of all, in the sense that uh, there, there's about half of America who's saying, look at that. you you got to focus on that. This is absolutely unbelievable. But we also have seen Donald Trump since 2015 say lots of things that are unprecedented in U.S. politics that his critics would consider to be absolutely unhinged and even just as recently as the past couple of days, him coming out and basically offering an invitation to Russia to attack NATO members if NATO members didn't pay what Donald Trump considers to be their fair share to the alliance, something that some people considered to to be absolutely tantamount to uh, being un-American, almost treasonous. So that's the level of discourse that we're having around Donald Trump right now. And he's not just forgetting things. He's not just mixing up names. It's not senior moments. Uh, These are things where people who are his critics, people, not only Democrats, but others, including some Republicans who are anti-Trumpers or who are skeptical of Trump saying, do we really want him leading our country again? That's a question that Donald Trump is having to grapple with and will have to do so in a general election context with undecided voters.
Okay, and then there's the elephant in the room. Uh, Trump still has to defend himself in four criminal cases. Uh, uh, he's been indicted 91 times in connection to those cases. And in the E. Jean Carroll uh, case, the jury concluded that he sexually abused her. The judge said that Trump actually raped her. Are those not issues for Republican and American voters? At least do those not rise to the top more than age? You would think that they would. And uh, but again, Donald Trump is a singular figure in American politics in a way that for about half of America makes him so wonderful. And for the other half of America makes him absolutely terrible and a danger. So that's a division that we have that's being illustrated by the very point that you brought up. But expect Democrats and expect all of the different political committees that will have a ton of money to bring to bear during this election cycle to point all of those things out. And I would expect that you're going to hear the word rapist. You're going to hear the word sexual assault more and more and more as things go on because, hey, we can talk about falsifying business records or having classified material and Mar-a-Lago or even January 6th, but that particular element of it, the sexual assault and his liability that was found in a court of law is something that could be a, a huge liability for him politically in a way that it isn't today, but could be in the future. Dave, uh, always good to speak with you. Thank you for this. Appreciate the time. Thank you, Michael. That's David Leventhal, Editor-in-Chief of The Raw Story. And that is Primetime Politics for this Wednesday. I'm Michael Serapio. For everyone here at CPAC, thank you for watching. Primetime Politics will be back tomorrow evening. But up next, Esté Bégin avec L'Essentiel.